Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting March 19th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. This week's episode is for the birds. We'll talk to Jeff Wells, senior scientist for the Boreal Songbird Initiative. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Jeff Wells is a leading conservation biologist and bird expert. He was formerly at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology and was the Audubon Society's National Conservation Director, and he's the author of the just-published Birders Conservation Handbook. We talked about birds, habitat conservation, and environmental economics in one of the world's great bird-watching sites. Dr. Wells, great to talk to you. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here. And here is Central Park. Why don't we spend just a minute talking about uh, Central Park and, and its role in the world of birds? Sure, yeah. Central Park is actually uh, considered an important bird area by the National Audubon Society. It's a it's an oasis of, of green, a green island in this urban sea around us. And because of that, um, birds, especially on migration, are drawn to it. It's one of the few places where they can descend from nocturnal migration and come down and find a safe haven to feed and rest um, before they move on. Oftentimes you can just see 50, 70 species uh, here in a morning, maybe more, uh, you know, during the height of migration. And I, I've been here where there's been thousands of, of white-throated sparrows, for example, just passing through the through the treetops on a, on a spring morning, you know, really important. Let's talk about your, uh, the two things we're going to talk about, the boreal forest, which I have to be honest with you, I'd never heard of before I started talking to you and your people. And also you have a new book out. So let's start with the boreal forest, which is... I don't know how I missed it because it's pretty big. It's pretty big, yeah. Actually, the North American boreal is about 1.6 billion acres. extends from interior Alaska across Canada all the way to Newfoundland to the Atlantic side. Um, it's one of the, the largest intact ecosystems, forest ecosystems, left on Earth. There's actually only three or four places that have these large, unfragmented habitats left. Um, and because of that, it ha- holds some of the largest populations of mammals and and birds some of the largest populations of wolves for example in caribou as well as we estimate one to three billion birds that nest there every year and that's some of the birds that are actually stopping off at at central park um there's going to be something like uh 10 to 30 million birds a night passing um across the u.s canadian border on their way north every day from now until early june most of these birds migrating at night, um, so um, you know people often miss this this great migration. But uh, just the incredible uh, flood of birds that are heading north right now to the boreal. These birds tend to winter down in the uh, in the warm south, or That's further right. south in the southern U.S. Even they might be in the Caribbean or South America. Most, and they'll go all the way back up to Canada. Most of the birds. Um, that breed in the boreal actually come down into the U.S., Central America, or South America to winter. About a, about a billion of them, we think, winter in the United States, and then another two-plus billion go into the Caribbean, Central America, and South America. Why are we so interested in the boreal forest? I mean, let's, let's talk turkey, so to speak. Uh, what does the boreal forest do for us? Because a lot of people, frankly... I mean, I love birds, but a lot of people just aren't that interested in birds. They say, oh, well, birds are nice, but what does it mean to me as a human? So what is the boreal forest doing for, for us? 
Well, along with being this incredible exporter of, of birds, basically, you know, making sure that every backyard has a white-throated sparrow and a, and a junco every year, um, it's also important as a place um, that provides uh, incredible e- ecosystem services, for example, um, just um, billions of dollars worth of, of ecosystem services and maintaining clean water and clean air and uh, as a, as a uh, shield against global warming. There's actually um, 27 years worth of the annual industrial emissions of CO2 stored in the soils and permafrost and peat of the boreal forest. So a whole host of, of conservation values that people hold dear. You, you talked about the the, uh, the economics of it. This is a relatively new field. I know Dave Pimentel at Cornell has been trying to categorize this for a while, but but this idea of actually assigning economic values to things that are usually left out of economic equations, like the the cost of cleaning water. You know, so do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, the um, we've had some. Uh, people that have worked on um, looking at the ecosystem services like cleaning water and things like that um, uh, the importance of the, the 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 economic value of the carbon stored there the economic value of the the fish and wildlife and, and birds that are there um, and actually have put together an assessment of all the, the, the so-called natural capital of the boreal forest and it turns out that if you compare that to what you could take out um, in traditional means by cutting the trees down or taking the oil and gas out. The natural capital values are worth about at least three times more than the than the uh, industrial extraction values. The difference is that uh, in the one case, the economic values go to a small segment of people, and in the other case, it's shared by all of us. The natural capital values are something that we all all share, and eventually society has to pay those values, and it's spread all around. In the other case, you know, the, the folks, the industry doing the extraction gets to take the capital out. How do we get this idea across to uh, people? I mean, still, it's, it's not really, I don't think, appreciated that there's an economic value in natural uh, environments that is maintained by just leaving them alone. Well, I think that, I mean, increasingly in places like New York, say, where we're seeing um, the degradation of the environment and, you know, the fragmentation and all the issues, you know, we're, we're actually starting to see where you have to actually pay for clean water. Um, in, in New York's case, you know, they looked at um, the options for maintaining clean water of either building a whole bunch of plants to clean the water or protecting forests in in the Catskills where the water comes from and it turned out that it was actually more economical to protect those forests to maintain that water. You know when you start getting right down to the situation where you got to make that decision you find out that um, um, you know you're actually putting a price tag on it that's going to come out of people's uh, pockets and when you start doing that I think you start to to see um, more realization of the values of, of keeping ecosystems intact and we hope that that um, as people become more aware of that in places like new york where the where the issues have come up that it'll help to make folks understand in places like the boreal or places where they're still in intact ecosystems of what those values really are and uh, the big threat to the to the north american boreal is uh the there's a well, there's a few different um, categories of threats right now. Um, oil and gas is one major one, and especially in the western 
boreal forest. The world's second largest oil deposit is in the boreal forest in the Alberta tar sands. I mean, it's an area of about 35 million acres, about the size of Florida, that is going to be mined and crisscrossed with a spider web of pipelines and roads um, to get the oil out of there. And that's going to be uh, something that's going to impact, probably cause the loss of tens of millions of birds. We're still trying to do some of the modeling to to assess that, but but we're talking about major impacts on birds. Um, forestry is another major um, driver of change in the boreal. There's uh, something like two million acres cut annually, mostly just for uh, paper products that are thrown away in the U.S. Um, tissue paper, um, paper towels, mailing catalogs, things like that. Um, what was it? Something like fifty-nine catalogs for every. American every year. I think I saw that in the book. Yeah, it's an astounding number. You know, there's one company that sells that just one single company that mails a million catalogs a day. Um, you know, the the number of catalogs. I, I I looked at some of the numbers recently, and the number of catalogs mailed in a couple of days is is more than the entire global populations of some of the birds that nest in the boreal. Kind of a funny contrast there. Yeah. Um, there's there's some other factors uh, and other issues impacting the boreal. Uh, mining is another big issue that's impacting the boreal. There's um, uranium mining and diamond mining and, and, and a whole host of other kinds of mines. Hydropower uh, is, an, is another um, major impact. Uh, there's millions of acres that have been flooded already for hydropower and more on the way. Oddly, logging is not really that big of a deal is it, compared to the others. Well, logging, the, the, in the southern boreal forest, approximately 70-plus percent of the forest has already been allocated to, to forestry. Um, and it hasn't all been cut. But some of the leases for single companies are the size of New York State. Um, it, so it is going to be the, the driver uh, in the future over the next 50 to 100 years. How forestry is done on the landscape will be the deciding factor for many birds. There's a whole host of birds that actually only occur in that southern boreal forest or that most of their populations occur there. Um, so for those birds, you know, their fate lies in the hands of how forestry management plays out over the next decades. Uh, for the last, what, about four years you've been working on this book that's now come out, the right. Birders Conservation Handbook. Talk about the the place of this book one of the things the book notes is that it's it's meant to be portable and leaf through and covered with coffee stains exactly and mine already is <laughs> yeah the idea that with the book was that it was something you, you didn't have to sit down and read cover to cover if you didn't want to you could just open it up um, the way um, birders like to open up a field guide you could just pick it up and read about the bird that you wanted to hear about in it and every time you did that you'd get a lesson in in conservation really about what factors are impacting the birds that you're concerned about, where do they spend their winters and their summers, um, what can you do to help? That's the other part that's really exciting. I really tried to make sure I highlighted these positive conservation models that are actually helping birds. You know, one of the reasons I did the book was that there's this paradox out there. There's something like 80 million people in the U.S., according to recent surveys, that are interested in birds in one way or another, you know, feed birds or um, watch birds, um, or take their kids to a wildlife refuge. And yet we keep hearing about more and more reports of declines in birds, you know, doubling of the extinction rate in birds globally in the last 50 years. And right now we are on the verge of what I call the 
the third renaissance of bird conservation, the first being the Audubon movement of the turn of the century, the second being the Rachel Carson movement of the 60s, and the third, we're on the verge of right now, there's actually more people involved in bird conservation than ever before in history um, among the professional bird conservation people. There's, there's, there's groups that have formed coalitions um, focused on protecting songbirds and waterfowl and shorebirds and, and uh, wading birds, and they've actually developed plans for how to fix the problem, how to grow more birds. But what we need is the support of the public and the government, and we need to get those 80 million people invested in trying to you know, turn that interest into uh, something that'll start growing more birds. We need to link together that interest with this surge of um, professional bird conservation activity, and we could really turn things around. The, the first uh, part of the book, before you get to the case-by-case uh, analyses of the, of the threatened and endangered birds, the first part of the book is, is just like a traditional book. You can sit there and read it, and uh, it has various sections, and one of them talks about birds as canaries, you know, literally canaries in coal mines, and the rest of the bird species out there as our canaries in the, the ecological coal mine that we're in. So, uh, you know, wh- what's the role of birds as indicators of the health of, of the environment, which is something that directly affects all of us? I mean, you know, look at asthma rates. That's, that's environmental, and, you know, the birds are our markers. Yeah, exactly. And birds, through through the ages have been indicators for for people in, in various different ways you know people they didn't always think of them that way but you know in, in ancient cultures they people watch for the return of of birds that might indicate you know that that spring was coming or that the fish runs were happening in the river and they were going to have food soon or that they were um, you know needed to maybe burn a burn an area because they needed to get the kind of habitat that would bring back game birds or, or, or game mammals that they that they hunted so they've always been used as indicators um, in more recent history you know we have examples like when we saw the, the decline of um, peregrine falcons and bald eagles and ospreys and pelicans as a result of DDT and um, it really helped us to figure out that um, DDT was a problem for one and that um, pesticides uh, in general, were some were an issue that we need to think about um, in terms of inver- human health, and people are you know in- becoming increasingly aware even today of that issue. So, um, you know, um, birds are excellent indicators, partly because people are so interested in them. Everybody watches them and pays attention to them, um, and um, they're telling us stories about the environment, messages about what's happening, and if we pay attention to to their ups and downs. I'll tell you a quick story. I was uh, I was listening to Rush Limbaugh once, mm-hmm. which I do as an exercise every once in a while, and uh, he was he was talking about how you know environmentalism is a sham because this is actually what he said. How can how can we believe? How can humans believe that we could possibly damage something that God made? And uh, as I was looking at your book and, and remi- being reminded of the story of, of the uh, passenger pigeons, and there were, what, mm-hmm. one and a half billion passenger mm-hmm. pigeons or in the three, country? Three to five billion. Three is to what five the billion. All right. It's one in a 1.6 billion acres of boreal forest and three to five billion passenger pigeons. And that was true as recently as a couple hundred years ago. Yeah. The late 1800s um, is when they were estimated to number three to five 
billion and from from say 1880 until it only took from 1880 to 1914 to cause the entire extinction of that species the last one died in a zoo in Cincinnati in 1914 to so go from 3 billion to to zero, 1 and then zero and that's permanent zero they are not coming back yeah that's one that nobody thinks they're going to ever rediscover they are gone and uh so i always think of of uh that in the in the limbaugh context of how could we possibly damage something the funny thing is he he immediately went from from that statement to a uh, a commercial that he read himself that was uh, for a uh, product to help you quit smoking if you're if you're not worried about an environmental uh environmentally related damage to something that god made why do you want to quit smoking you well, it's, it's, but anyway, I mean it, that's all wrapped up in that whole idea that we can always come up with a, a, a new um, technological advance before we cause you know something to, to disappear. You know, there's I know a whole uh, set of ac- economists who, who say that there's nothing to worry about with the environment because we'll always come up with a new technological fix before things get too bad. And yet, you know, what do you say to you know the passenger pigeon? What do you say to you know the ivory built woodpecker? There's a host of other species. What do you say to, you know, the the uh, blue pike of the Great Lakes? You know, uh, all these things that we commercially exploited and that are absolutely gone. You know, there's there's case after case where it didn't work that way. Uh, so it's kind of like jumping out of an airplane and hoping somebody hands you a parachute before you hit the ground. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And the thing that's ironic about it is the, with the passenger pigeon that at the time when they were so abundant, they actually were uh, something that provided this great economic boon to local communities. When a, when a colony ended up nearby, people would go out, people who didn't have a lot of money would go out, and they would take the birds and pack them in barrels and get paid for that and then send them to the markets. Um, people in New York City and Chicago and Atlanta, you know, would get these things by, by rail, and people who didn't have a lot of sources of protein and income, didn't have a lot of money, could buy cheap food for the time being. And, you know, it, it could have been possible to maintain something that abundant if it had been considered at the time um, so that it would have provided economic opportunity into the future if, you would, if we had wanted that. And we could have made sure that there were still passenger pigeons on the earth. And there are, you know, it's possible um, to do some of those things. But um, instead, we just thought of it as a, as a resource that had no limits. And every time we've done that in case after case around the world, We've ended up either causing the extinction or, you know, the collapse of uh, of the population. You know, the cod fishery or uh, or whales or whatever it is. Let's end on a happy note because you you talk in the beginning of the book about how you uh, there's so much doom and gloom that often gets uh, g- uh, gets attached to environmental stories. But but you you hope that your book has an upbeat uh, flavor to it and that it encourages people. Yeah, I mean, in a way, that's one of the uh, bird conservation secrets that I want everybody to know, that once we figure out what the problem is, we can actually fix it. We've got case after case where we've done it. You know, bald eagles are now common in many areas now, and ospreys have come back and, and bald eagles, and we reintroduce peregrine falcons across the east. And, you know, this case after case. We, You know, whooping cranes have doubled in numbers. Uh, piping plovers have quadrupled in numbers. You know, these are birds that we figured out what the problem was, and we went in and we fixed the problem. Um, it's case after case of that. And right now there are thousands and thousands of people um, from the professional uh, level to the 
to the amateur and volunteer level who have projects that they're working on to protect birds, save birds, to grow more birds. And so there's a million ways to get involved. It's just all it is is just people actually recognizing what the problem is, recognizing that it's a value that they care about, and then figuring out how to do something about it. And speaking of those ways, you you were the uh, the founder really of eBird. I was part of the uh, team that that. Um, put together eBird. Yeah, eBird is uh, sort of a revolutionary new internet-based tool that allows anybody uh, from amateur to professional to put in bird sightings from anywhere in much of the Western Hemisphere right now, it may be worldwide eventually, um, and assemble all that data into one place so that we can start understanding how birds move, how their populations change. Um, you know, right now there are these millions of people out there seeing birds, some of them, some people write down the numbers and so on, but that information doesn't go into a central place. It doesn't really get used or used effectively. And so you can imagine suddenly you have these millions of observers all across North America putting those into a database um, that is stored forever and that researchers have access to. You know, it's kind of revolutionary and amazing and already they've you know amassed i don't know how many millions of records just in the last few years and and it is so easy you know like right here as we've been sitting here in central park you know i've heard um, 10 or 20 different species of birds i can go uh, on my computer in a few minutes and i could put all that information in and it's and it's stored you know and saved it's just amazing that you know you could capture that much information and and, and it it's interesting in the scientific perspective because what we're finding right now with issues like climate change and conservation is that we really need fine-grained um, samples from very large geographic areas to really understand the dynamics of species range movements and how fragmentation is occurring and, and many biogeographic questions. And literally the only way we can do this is through volunteer networks like this because it would cost billions and billions to send professionals out at that fine a scale to understand it. So this is a, a real opportunity for regular people to do real science that's that's valuable research and that gets used in in uh, big scientific projects. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and it's sort of a almost cutting edge really, you know, to be able to capture masses of information at that kind of fine scale is something we've never no, never been done on earth really you just go to ebird.org yeah dr wells i know you have a migration to uh, attend to you have to fly back to maine so yes thanks very much for your time thanks steve for more on the boreal songbird initiative just go to www.borealbirds.org where you can also find jeff wells blog now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one. If you watch an average five hours of cable news, you'll get 17 minutes of science and technology reporting. Story two. Alligators can maneuver underwater by moving their lungs around internally. Story three. Last week, a California man had his appendix removed through his mouth. And story four. Moths can remember things they learned as caterpillars. 
Time's Up Story 4 is true. Moths retain memories laid down while they were caterpillars. That research appeared in the journal Public Library of Science 1. Georgetown researchers found that tobacco hornworm caterpillars could be trained to avoid particular odors delivered in association with a mild electric shock. When the caterpillars emerged from their cocoons as moths, they also avoided the odors, showing that they had learned their larval lesson. Story three is true. On March 12th, surgeons at UC San Diego removed a man's appendix through his mouth. The intent is to avoid big incisions that increase recovery time. The procedure still requires a small incision to insert a tiny camera in the belly button. And story two is true. Alligators can move their lungs around, which act as flotation devices and thus move underwater without paddling or wagging their tails. Makes it easier to sneak up on dinner. That's according to research published online in the Journal of Experimental Biology. For more, check out the March 14th episode of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. All of which means that story one, about 17 minutes of SciTech news in a five-hour block of cable news, is totally bogus. Because what is true is that you get one measly minute of science and technology coverage in the average five hours of cable news. That's according to the Pew Research Center's State of the News Media Report for 2008. Celebrity, crime, and disasters together get an average of an hour and 12 minutes out of the five hours. I have a friend who often says that watching cable news actually makes you dumber. A sci-fi great Arthur C. Clarke died at the age of 90 on March 19th. He was a subscriber to Scientific American Magazine. He occasionally would send us email about articles. In tribute, here are his three laws. One, when a distinguished but elderly scientist states that something is possible, he is almost certainly right. When he states that something is impossible, he is very probably wrong. Two, the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. And three, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Siam podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com and check out siam.com for the latest science news, blogs, and videos. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.